When I was in college, for example, the profession that I'm in didn't exist. The World Wide Web literally didn't exist. I often think that, you know, there's a kind of lack of courage on the part of a lot of institutions to say, we're not training hard skills exclusively. If you're talking about the kind of work that high-tech organizations do, there are definitely people with extremely high levels of technical skill. But even they have to come equipped with skills like the ability to carry a conversation, the ability to learn something from somebody else. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. The entrepreneurial journey is usually filled with many twists and churns, and the path for Jim McCarthy, CEO and co-founder of Gold Star, was no different. There are not many people that can say they were not only there when the internet was being developed into how we interact with it today, but to have actually had a hand in that development, which may come to no surprise was being curated during the early stages of Amazon. Jim illustrates that entrepreneurial thinking is what makes the difference in seeing an opportunity that can be executed uniquely in order to be more effective or to create a new idea that will solve a problem more effectively. But the question then becomes, how do we begin to cultivate innovative thinking as a skill that can be taught within an educational institute in order to yield a workforce that has the potential to change our future? Welcome back, listeners. Today, I'm here with Jim McCarthy, CEO and co-founder of Gold Star. Good morning, Jim. Hey, Salvatrice. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Good. It's a bright, sunny, very hot Southern California day. So um, thank you so much for spending some time and chatting up with us on your uh, entrepreneurial journey uh, with Gold Star. And if you don't mind, can we just jump right into our chat? Let's do it. All right. So... Let's start with just that. Can you tell us about your professional journey and, and what led you to Gold Star? We started Gold Star 18 years ago. So it's been forever ago. Before that, I had a, a, a nice long seven or eight years in high growth companies and then as the founding employee of uh, a tech company, another internet company. 
So I, I guess what you'd say is that the years leading up to the founding of Gold Star were a good education in what growth looks like and um, and then a little bit of education in what it means to actually start a company. And so for me, it, it started I, – I, I went to Japan and taught English after college, which, by the way, was great. I, I just couldn't recommend that more strongly to somebody who's 22. And in Japan, I, I realized how much – business had done for Japan in the years since the war, because Japan was and is, you know, a a super advanced, extremely prosperous society. And when I lived there in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, it was just within a generation of being a poor country, you know, and you could actually still see and and even feel that, right? Uh, One of my friends in Japan said that Japan was at that time kind of like the house of somebody who won the lottery, because a lot of the a lot of the things in their house were still from before they won the lottery. Now, of course, you know they 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 didn't just win the lottery. They worked you know very hard to build their economy and all that stuff. So maybe it's not a great comparison, but the, it was more like you'd 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 walk along and see the spe- spectacular fruits of all the development that had happened, and then next to that would be something that was obviously from the agricultural age of of their history. So it's just you know it, it it was I love Japan. It's an amazing place to this day, but. Coming back to America, I, I really had this idea that as a lever or an engine of prosperity that business could be great. And so I wanted to be involved in business, the businesses that were up to something. And the first you know, sort of real job that I had, certainly my, my first job in the business world was at Noah's Bagels, which some of you may know, people out there may know. <laughs> the ones that are in Pasadena technically aren't Noah's Bagels, but they are Noah's Bagels because I opened both of them. And they are nose bagels, even though they say Einstein's on the uh, on the the outside. That's so awesome! I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know Noah's. I, when I joined Noah's, we had thirteen locations, all in the Bay Area, and then over the course of about a year and a half, we opened a hundred and ten or hundred and fifteen more. So, so oh you my, know, you're, you're oh my goodness. Yes. So, and and for me, what what happened was. I actually started by running a store in uh, Berkeley, California, at the Solano Avenue store in Berkeley, California, which was Noah's personal Noah's. So Noah would come in and get his bagels a couple times a week, and, you know, that was great. But then I moved to Southern California from Northern California to open all of the stores in Southern California. Southern California actually became the larger of the two regions for Noah's because we we were opening a store at just ridiculous rates. There was a point where we were opening one store a week and that went on for, I don't know, two or three months. So that was crazy. So you learn about growth from that. And then after that, um, I went to business school in the FEMBA program at Anderson at UCLA and left Noah's and um, really had a moment to say, what's next? What, What should I be thinking about? And what am I interested in? And so there's this thing called the internet and I decided that it probably there was probably something to it, you know. Contrary to what um, he was the CEO of Universal at the time said, the internet is the CB radio of the '90s. One of the best quotes wow. ever. Yeah. <laughs> Got that one wrong. Um, <laughs> and so I spent a few months really sort of digging into what in the world was going on in the internet scene in Southern California, and getting to know everybody. And I. Uh, Stumbled into a job at GeoCities, which, again, I think a lot of people will, will remember. And GeoCities was the, really the first place where you could get a free homepage, you know, for yourself. Famously full of cat, cat photos and whatever else. But also, um, at one point, GeoCities was 
I don't know, people said different numbers, but somewhere between 10 and 12% of the World Wide Web was GeoCity. It's just astounding. And my job was to do this thing that was kind of mysterious and nobody really knew what it was, e-commerce. I was excited about e-commerce and all of its potential. My first assignment was to think about how to manage our relationship with this company in Seattle called Amazon. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. And so I went through this process of learning what was interesting about the internet to me and e-commerce was the top of my list. So I, I came in guns blazing to my GeoCities interview saying, what are you doing in e-commerce? And they said, well, we're trying to figure out what in the hell to do with Amazon. And I said, mm. I, that sounds fun. So the, the thing that was great for me was that I got to really see the inside of how Amazon thought in the very early mm. days when they were really creating what it meant to do e-commerce correctly. Again, I mean, we, I was working with them when it was just books. So for pe- some of you probably don't even know that that was ever the case. I don't. Um, I didn't. You I didn't know that? that? No. Yeah. In fact, if you've ever seen a tab on the internet, they invented the tab because, as far as I know, they invented the tab. If they if they didn't invent it, they were the first ones to to use it to great effect. They invented the tab because they added they added CDs to their product mix, and so they were like, "Well, how do we oh. how do we let people choose between you know." Books and CDs. So they created a tab. So you, you know, you clicked on one tab and it was books and another tab and it was CDs. You know, the big question was, can they do both? I mean, oh my God, can, you know, can they sell books and CDs? And so obviously they, they, you know, totally failed at that. And they learned that books were really the only thing they could do. No, that's not what happened. (laughs) That's the opposite of what happened. We were really building the internet. We were really building what the, Mm -hmm. what consumers and businesses were going to be interacting with, you know, Times were were sort of amazing until the next year rolled around. Mm-hmm. But what never changed through all of this, through the, the what they call the dot-com bust and all this other stuff, dot-bomb, whatever you want to call it, what never changed is that the, the number of ways and the amount of times that consumers turned to the Internet, and businesses too, turned to the Internet to do stuff just kept growing. Mm. It just kept growing. It was becoming obvious that the internet could be the facilitator for just about anything you could think of. I mean, I guess now that just seems super obvious, but it wasn't then to many people. So now fast forwarding, if you can you know, tell us more about Gold Star a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the, very straightforward. So one of my, my best friends that had worked with me at GeoCities and I, and actually another guy that I went to business school with, we, we were driving to Long Beach. This is actually part of the entrepreneurial journey driving to Long Beach for that job together every morning at like 6.30 and talking about, you know, the day that we would do our own our own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, one day, you know, shaking our fists at the world. One day, we, <laughs> it just turns out that that day was like nine months later. So we, we all left over the course of um, several months, left, left the company and came up with this concept, very simple concept, really, that there were all these shows out there that people wanted to see and all these seats that were not being sold. I mean, you know, the classically in this is uh, even talking about this is making me nostalgic, but it, it's still true. Typically in live entertainment, sports, that kind of thing, about 50% of seats are unsold overall. Mm-hmm. Not true in every event, obviously. But mm-hmm. and so we realized that the internet could be made to mass customize the experience so that if you have, you know, if you're in one city and you have one set of tastes and somebody else is a slightly different set of tastes, we can actually bring that together for you with 
customized content and emails that are targeted just to you. And those are the tools that we had at the time, a website that responds to what you've, you know, what you've bought before and stuff like that. And that's what really Gold Star was, was built to do. Gold Star was mm-hmm. built to bring together people with shows. And so we set off with $1,000 in the bank to build as many relationships with organizations that were doing shows as we could. And then somehow, by hook or by crook, build an audience of people who wanted to to maybe go see shows a little more often. And literally, for the first six months of, of doing so, it was this constant process of almost like pumping up a tire that's got a leak in it. You know, mm-hmm. we'd do a little bit and we'd get some progress and then it would kind of slide back. But we, but we were doing the right things. We were investing our time in building relationships with organizations in a way that was clearly beneficial to them because it was all upside, right? It was just free marketing and free sales. How did you know, I mean, what intel did you receive or was it just by experience or just an idea that this would be, that this is a desired need? What brought you closer to building Gold Star? It, was it something you experienced? Was it what you've heard? Was it just your journey? How did you get to that? Yeah, it, it's a good question. There's, no, You know, one of the things that I, I say, and actually I found myself saying this last night, no idea, every new business idea that people come up with, you know, when they're thinking about starting something sounds stupid. I mean, I, I'm serious when I say that. Like, if you, it either sounds stupid or it sounds boring, in my opinion. And, I, and I've helped a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, think through concepts over the years. And if your idea doesn't sound a little crazy or stupid, then it's 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 maybe boring. And boring doesn't mean it's bad, right? I mean, that right. could be really good, boring ideas. Maybe some lucrative, but, boring uh, ideas, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right. You know, I heard about a guy who was just making a fortune making screws. And he had a couple of machines that just made screws. And he told me, it's like I can print nickels. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like every screw that came off, that was a nickel. So if you had a nickel-making machine, you'd just run it day and night. So that's basically what he did. And that is boring. But on the other hand, it's not a bad idea. I think that the idea of a clever concept is overvalued and executions undervalued by, by entrepreneurs when they start. So I think what where we were coming from was that it was a very obvious problem that the people who were selling tickets to shows wanted more people in their shows. And that was a real structural problem in the industry. And we had, I would say, maybe flimsy is not the right word, but we didn't have anything that would convince your professor or whatever that people wanted to go out more. But any time, and I still occasionally have done this, where I'll ask a group of people, raise your hand if you wish you went out to shows more than you do, right? Whether Whatever you like. Is it concerts? Is it theater? Is it whatever it is? And, and usually about 90% of people raise their hand saying yes to that. Um, and I think we all would say yes to that right now. No, even in normal times, people just don't do the things they want to do, even though they're available. And the biggest problem is they don't know they're there. So putting those two pieces together and saying, well, why is that the case? Well, certainly pre-internet, the reason for that was just it's very, very hard to get a message to um, the right people when it comes to a show. So Gold Star's whole purpose was to close that gap, you know, was to mm-hmm. was to really end the, the mismatch between those two things. And, you know, you don't have to have a bulletproof idea if you manage the risk at the startup. This is another thing that I think is really important for people to see, mm-hmm. is that you will learn more with, I don't know, a day in the real market than you will with six months of research often. 
but sometimes it's just too costly to go into market even for a day, right? But if it's not, if you can make it so that you can, you know, b- build a website and just see what happens and tweak it as you go, you can actually go really far. Right. And that's our approach was sort of in between. You know, we had some good reasons to think what we thought, but on the other hand, we ourselves could build websites and do everything we needed to get in business on this thing. And so we did. So along that same vein of you working with entrepreneurs now, right? So fast forward, yeah. you're a very well-accomplished entrepreneur who has you know, more than 100 employees and 8 million members, et cetera, et cetera. With us as a community college or any college, any institution, well, we're working really hard to find the best ways to train and inspire like this next generation of entrepreneurs specifically. And it's very uncertain now with this pandemic that we're faced with, but you know, as, as institutions, we'd like to, you know, attribute to that or train as best as we can. We know that, you know, the majority of it has to just go out, just go out and do it, get the bruises, get the scrapes. And that's how you learn. You know, But what do you think might be, the best ways for us as institutions to accomplish just that, to inspire and to train the next generation of entrepreneurs? It's a really good question because it's not obvious to me what you can do to make people entrepreneurs, but it is obvious to me, or, or maybe not obvious, but it, I do feel like there's some ways that you can help people think about it. One of the main things is there is such a thing as entrepreneurial thinking, and it doesn't just apply to people who are starting a business. Someone can have entrepreneurial thinking or non-entrepreneurial thinking r- regardless of where they are, you know. So entrepreneurial thinking is is really a way of of trying to see through what ap- what appears to be on the surface of a situation and, and get past all the social stuff and get to the reality. So, you know, the goal of any entrepreneur, whether they're really an entrepreneur or somebody inside a larger organization that's functioning like an entrepreneur, is to make certain resources more productive by way of just reframing them in a way, right? Like it's not, it's not so much that you have to invent it, although that can be valuable too. It's often just taking the same thing and making it more valuable. And that has a lot to do with not accepting the existing way that people look at things. Um, Not to say that's wrong. It just means sometimes, you know, turning something 40 degrees and saying, okay, but what if we just don't do any of that stuff? Because that's not useful and instead sort of do this other thing. So I I think there's ways to teach entrepreneurial thinking. And Mm -hmm. I think in a way, what we've done as a a society, and I I can't really speak too much to what the sort of educational institutions have done on this. I think it's a a mixed bag. What we've done as um, as a society when it comes to entrepreneurship is we've created some of the wrong ideas, I think, over the last 10 or 20 years. That's interesting. I mean, the first one to kind of share that honestly how how so well i i think that the first complaint that i have is that i guess if you, if you went by the media or if you went by what people who aren't close to entrepreneurs believe entrepreneurship is because of what is around them they they believe in one model for entrepreneurship which is come up with some really clever thing, pitch it to some rich people, get their money, and then go build it, and then maybe go back and get some more money and then build it, and then eventually you sell it and you're rich. This is a common thing, right? That's potentially a way. It's a rare path. Right. It's rare that that's the right path for entrepreneurs. That's a sort of, you know, 1% to 5% or less. I don't know. It's really So we've, like, glorified that. Like, we've glorified that 1%. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. That that that. If you didn't think it, if you didn't know better, you'd think that was what it was, right? As opposed to the guy who prints nickels, right? I mean, that he might have just somehow seen through some job he had or something that you know somebody had one of these machines, and he's like, "Can I buy one of these?" You know, sure I can. You know, what I mean, like it, it's it's really is a wide and varied path. I think that's the first problem. You know, it it isn't a coincidence, maybe that we're at, I don't know, multi-decade lows in new venture formation. It's tragic, right? It I mean, sure you, you'd think that with all this talk of entrepreneurship, it would have an impact on the number of people creating businesses. But it's, it, if anything, you know, it's, it's fewer people. And why, you know, the question you have to ask is, why is that? You know, I, I, I received a master's at USC in entrepreneurship and innovation. And I learned a lot through that process. And I learned a lot through you know, building the SPDC and now building a division of economic and workforce development for the college here. What I tend to see, and maybe this is what kind of aligns with what you're sharing as a problem, is that I feel like we're coaching up really great storytellers. We're telling them how to pitch. We're telling them how to theoretically build, but not really going out there and the execution part of it all. We're amplifying very one small piece to this very complex journey of an entrepreneur. I don't think we, we as institutions, obviously, you know, we don't really do a great job at just highlighting, to your point, the guy that's making nickels, right? Like the guy that, you know, is making screws, like the guy, you know, and they're doing incredibly well. That's an entrepreneur too, right? But it's not, it's not a glorified entrepreneur. Like they didn't. Well, I mean, it, it can be. It, it certainly can be. I, I think you're right. I mean, the overemphasis on the storytelling and the pitching is a separation from reality, right? Yes. So what if you can do that, right? I mean, it, storytelling is always a useful skill, and I use it every day with my, you know, with lead, leadership sure. and, and things like that. But I mean, the first time I ever pitched, and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, but the first time I ever pitched Gold Star. <laughs> To somebody other than, you know, potential partners, like, you know, organizations that we're, we hope to work with, you know, to sell tickets for them was probably, I don't know, 10 years after we started the company and we were already pretty successful, you know. I hate it in a way. I hate it because it implies that you are going out and seeking permission from somebody who knows better than you to get started. And I hate that. Nobody... I mean, there's the old Hollywood slogan, nobody knows anything, and it applies here too. I was, I was just saying last night, you know, despite 25 years of experience in high growth and entrepreneurial businesses and whatever, you know, if there was a room full of 10 potential entrepreneurs and they all did their, you know, explanation of their concept, I, I consider myself maybe slightly better than random at being able to say which ones are good. What I can probably tell you is which ones have fatal flaws in them. Because they're just they're just built to fail conceptually, but even that can be fixed. You know, even even that can be sort of patched. You know, but which one's going to take off? I mean, one of the one of the things that I always find fun is take anything that's successful, and and kind of trying to wind the clock back before it was obvious to the world why why that thing was was so good, and explain explain it, and it will not seem like it was obvious that it was successful. You know, t- take something like Airbnb, for example, which is, you know, very successful. You know, they had a really hard time convincing people that was a good idea, right? I mean, like, let, let's just imagine, right? It's 2008 or whatever, whenever that was. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Listen, here's my, here's my idea. Here's my idea. You're going to go stay in somebody's house. 
Okay, what do you mean? Well, okay, so you can go on the internet and you can click on a thing and you can pay money and then you'll stay, you'll like sleep in somebody's, in a bedroom of somebody's house. And uh, the person would go, wait, what? How is that not a terrible idea? No, 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 it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It just doesn't seem like a good idea, right? You could poke a thousand holes in that, like you're going you're gonna to get stabbed. And it turns out that most of that, you know, despite all of that, they figured out how to actually make that crazy idea work. And you wouldn't have necessarily known it listening to the original idea. You would have had a thousand reasons to say that's terrible. And so that goes back to my thing about, you know, things sound crazy, right? Especially new things. Yes, things sound crazy. And then you're trying to sell the crazy to build your team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, here you are a seasoned entrepreneur who's done it, been there, done that. You know, what was the best way that you found in building your team and curating local talent? Or maybe it wasn't local. I don't know. And then how do we like how do we as a catalyst to that make that connection tighter? With young people just sort of starting their careers, there, there's not a huge expectation on their existing experience or knowledge for the kinds of jobs that someone might take when they're 22 or 23, right? They're, you know, right. There's not, they're not expected to have, you know, five years of experience with any, anything, right? Because they, that would, right. doesn't, it's not realistic. But the kinds of things that you want from somebody at that age are more, more like habits and attitudes. Those might be things that you could either cultivate or identify with, within, you know, within an institution like PCC. Yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot to be said about the soft skills. There's a lot to be said about those, yeah. Right? <laughs> so what I struggle with is how do we convey that message that, you know, we're training our students not only for the skill set, but also the soft skills. You know, it's really hard to convey that message that really has to be done on an individual student level and, and how they perform. And do you have any ideas around how we could better articulate as an institution that we are trainers or facilitators of well preparing our students for the workforce outside of technical you know the interesting thing about technical st- skills is that you make a big bet when you train a, a very young person in a technical field because there's a really good chance and especially the more specific that you get there's a really good chance those skills are going to be irrelevant for most of their career and i think about when i was in college for example the profession that i'm in didn't exist the World Wide Web literally didn't exist. You know, the idea of e-commerce that, that didn't exist, right? I mean, there were certainly things that I, that I learned that were highly applicable, but none of it was either technical or, or industry-specific. And so I think that's a problem. I, I, I often think that, you know, there's a kind of lack of courage on the part of, uh, a, lot of a, a lot of institutions to say, we're not, you know, we're not training hard skills exclusively because, you know, people feel tough when they say, or they feel serious or something when yeah. they say, we're training hard skills, it's hard skills, hard. they're going to code and they're going to, you know, weld or I don't, I don't know what, I mean, like all the, there, yeah. there are plenty of hard skills that are very valuable. But if you're talking about the kind of work that, that we do, or that a lot of high tech organizations do, there are definitely people with extremely high levels of technical skill. But even they have to come equipped with skills like the ability to carry a conversation, the ability to learn something from somebody else, right? The ability to take ideas on board and change what they do, right? Things like knowing when 
it's important to accelerate what they're doing so that they can achieve the goal that's really important as opposed to being i mean i, I find one one of the things that's really a big difference maker early in the career of a of a young person is do, do they want a checklist of things that when they do them they're done or are they focused on the actual success of the of whatever they're doing right if, do, you know you know you can learn and mature to to that point but you know, some people come to the idea that, look, we're here to win. And if I, you know, meet some minimum list of criteria for having done enough to not get fired, that doesn't necessarily mean that we won. Those mindsets really do differ, right? And and there's other things too. I mean, the ability to read something and truly understand it, the habit to think through an idea and really have your mind get around that idea and not, not just stop at the first easy answer, right? Do, does someone have the discipline of mind to spend 30 minutes just thinking about something they're asked to, to work through? Or do they sit for two minutes and sort of get impatient and then the first thing that pops into their mind is what they go with? So those are the kinds of skills that really, really, really matter. And especially when you're in a you know, non-technical sort of role, which most people are, or even if you are, you you got to be able to do those things or you're just going to be more to manage. So I have to believe that those are some of the key traits that Gold Star really looks at, right? <laughs> as much as we can. You know, you want to get a sense like does does the person come in sort of in it to win it? Right. You can't measure soft skills. And I think that's a challenge too, right? Is as employers, we're looking in hiring recruiting the best talent, which includes both hard skills, hard skills and soft skills, but you know, on a resume, you can say, well, I got this certificate. So that validates that I've got that skill. That's right. You know, that's right. You can't, <laughs> you can't, there's nothing to show outside of your, your narrative and outside of just like you telling the story when, at the interview on who you really are, that you have these other skills that are complementary to your technical skills, right? Well, yeah, I, um, I think you can do that, though. I mean, I think if you, if you have critical thinking skills, you can talk about critical thinking exercise that you did, right? I mean, you know, one of the biggest skills, and I actually spend time training this with, uh, with the Gold Star team, listening is one of the most underdeveloped skills that people have. It sounds stupid. How did you do that? Well, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of good literature on listening. I mean, it is really quite simple. On the other hand, it's hard. But when I say the listening is a skill, someone can either, in, in the course of an interview, this happens all the time, you're either demonstrating good listening right then and there or you're not. That's, that's one that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's demonstrable, right? Because when you listen well to somebody in the course of a conversation, you're going you're gonna to hear things and be, be able to improve that conversation in ways that most people just won't. So it's an opportunity. And I would very much say that that's one of the biggest advices that we can give our students as we prepare them and just some kind of like life lessons or life skills so with, with that, are there any other additional parting advice that you have for students? I, I think that for people, young, you know, people just leaving college or they're early in their, in their years, uh, their career years, my, my best advice is don't immediately become an entrepreneur because you, you probably are going to do better by going into some kind of field, getting some kind of job that interests you because you, you'll learn at an incredible rate by doing that and, and get paid for it, right? Being an entrepreneur when you really don't have a lot of knowledge about something 
is um, you know heroic thing, but it's also usually not a winning play, right? There, you know, you're you've got time, right? You your twenties are really a time to learn, and it's not a throwaway time because it's an irreplaceable opportunity to learn fast in a career setting. But you have to put yourself in a setting that you like. You don't have to make a lot of money, but you have to be somewhere where you have the opportunity to learn. And I would say just if you have entrepreneurial instincts, just just hold. Hold those entrepreneurial instincts. You know, if you're Zuckerberg and you, there's something you just have to do, do it. I'm not saying that. But for most people, that's just not the case. And so you could start a company or you could spend three, four, five years working with people who know how certain aspects of it are done. And you'll emerge from that a thousand times better educated than you went in. Right. And someone will have paid you for the privilege. So Resist the idea that entrepreneurs are these geniuses who think of these great ideas and then those ideas basically just make themselves succeed. And take your time until you feel you're right and you've learned and then time is right. And, you know, learn on somebody else's dime and the opportunities will be there when you're ready. That's really great. Well, thank you. This has been such an amazing conversation, Jim. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that our listener who's either a student, a faculty, or an employer We'll gain some really valuable takeaways. And thank you for your time. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast presented by Pasadena City College. If you'd like to get involved and have resources to share or be a guest on the show, you can find a link to our webpage to reach out to us in the show notes. Also, don't forget to subscribe and tell us your thoughts about the show. This helps more people like you discover the podcast and you can look forward to new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.